The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, heard, near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. chapter begins with the vague statement, as he passed by. It doesn't tell us much about where exactly Jesus was or when exactly this happened. Probably still in Jerusalem, though, given the pool of Siloam being in this text. He's just walking down the street with his disciples, and they pass a man born blind, probably off the side of the street, begging. Only way he could sustain himself. And the disciples look at him, and working through their cultural understanding, they assume... That this man is in this situation as a result of sin. The only question is, whose sin? For whose sin is this man now suffering here? Jesus, his parents, or his own? And Jesus' answer is intriguing, maybe even for some of us. Neither sinned. Nobody sinned here. Nor did it just happen. Nor was it caused by genetic malfunction or by poor prenatal care. The ultimate cause behind all this is that God did it. God made this man blind so that God could do some things in and through him. This entirely fits with the Old Testament. Perhaps you remember the, in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, when Moses is, is in dialogue with God. God's calling Moses to send him to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh. And Moses finally says, I just can't do it. I'm slow of speech. Perhaps he's referring to a speech impediment that he had. We don't know. But I, I can't do it. I have a problem with my mouth. And God says to him, Who made men's mouths? And who makes them so that they are mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Obvious answer, yes. 
The Lord makes mouths. The Lord makes bodies. And he makes them in all different ways. And God made this particular man blind so as to display something in him. Now, obviously, something in particular is going to happen here. Jesus is going to do something specific. But it's interesting to note that as he seizes this opportunity to carry out God's agenda in his life, he kind of includes us a little bit, the disciples, the we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus is thinking in an analogy of day. And he sees that the cross is coming. He's months from the cross. It's dusk in his day. The sun is setting. The light is going to leave the world. But while he's still here, he is still light, shining in this world, exposing, illumining things. And so he's got some stuff to do. He's earnest here. We must be about something here. He's eager. We must do these works. Jesus can do something specific, but the essence of what he does, we are to be involved in also. What does he do exactly? He takes a little paste, makes a little paste, he spits in some dirt, forms it together. Why does he do that? There are a lot of theories. The best answer is we do not know. There are other theories. Perhaps he is making an allusion back to how God created man and woman from dirt. And he's recreating him with dirt. Maybe he's doing that. Perhaps he's just making something so as to force the issue with the Pharisees, as we'll see shortly. For whatever reason, he makes this mud paste and then anoints his eyes with it and sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash. Now perhaps that name Siloam is familiar to you. It's the same pool in Jerusalem from which the priests drew out the water for the water-pouring ceremony during the, the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about that. That's the feast that prompted Jesus to say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Same pool. So Jesus and John are kind of connecting some things here for us. And we find out additionally that Siloam, the word means sent. So we've got some, some connections here. The sent one is sending someone to the pool called sent. Where he's earlier already connected this idea of thirst being quenched. Now he's going to heal his sight. A lot of different things kind of colliding here. It's meant to give us an expectation. And what do you know? He washes and he comes back seeing. It's a miracle. Stated in a rather underhanded way. But he comes back and the neighborhood explodes. He's lived here for years. He's an adult man. And now finally he's got all these smells and sounds that he has now sight to. All these familiar voices of people in the neighborhood, he now has faces to them. And the voices are a buzz. You can imagine how amazing this would be. Are, are you the guy? You look like the guy, but you can't be the guy. I am the guy. Back and forth and back and forth. I'm the one. Well, how did it happen? Well, he put some mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. Who? Jesus. Where is he? I don't know. He could be standing right here. I've never seen him. I don't know. Well... In this kind of a, a religious society, the next thing that happens is that they need to get the re religious leader's opinion on this. So they take him to the Pharisees. Not out of malice, this is just a, something amazing has happened. What do we make of it? Tell us. They're the leaders. And so they begin to inquire. They ask him this and that. What did he do it? How? When? And when they hear what John the writer kind of slides in there for us, verse 14, Oh, and by the way, it was a Sabbath when he made the mud and opened his eyes, emphasizing the thing that Jesus did on the Sabbath. When they hear that, 
their ears perk up. They get a little more pointed. What exactly did he do one more time? We know this is going to be a problem for them. Because the Sabbath is the day on which people of God weren't supposed to work. They're supposed to rest from their usual labors and instead to commune with and fellowship with God, to reflect on Him and His work. So what's running through their minds? Jesus did a work of making a mud paste and anointing and healing on the Sabbath. He broke the law of God. That's what they're thinking. And the conclusion for some of them is, so he can't be of God, then he's a sinner. While others say, you know, I don't know, he did something pretty amazing. Hold off there a second. Two arguments, and there's some division there. Now, neither one of those arguments is very good. They're both flawed. The latter argument assumes that anything that's outwardly good must be of God. It's not true. Satan has power too. The man makes a similar argument later in the chapter. We can kind of forgive him. He's a a non-religious person, but they should know better. This is not definitive proof, but at least it gives them pause. That's the better of the two options, but the, the former one, the one that wins the day, is that he cannot be of God because he's broken the law. The Sabbath law is a complicated thing. We talked about this before when we were in chapter 5 when we saw Jesus heal the paralytic man on the Sabbath. Again, on purpose, doing it on the Sabbath. A lot of issues there. But for our purposes this morning, what we need to realize is that for two reasons, Jesus is in the right here. First reason is he didn't actually break the law of God. He broke an oral law, a tradition that had been built on the law of God. He didn't actually do anything against the law here. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, if he actually is not only fully submissively man, but fully sovereignly God in one, then he is God, and he must not rest on the Sabbath. Everybody agreed, God does not actually literally rest on the Sabbath. God does not take one day and seven off and say, don't bother praying today, I don't do anything, I don't listen, I don't answer, I don't hold the atoms of the world together today, so good luck. God does not rest on one day in seven. Everybody agreed on that. Everybody knew. And if he is God, then it is entirely appropriate for him to be working and healing and reclaiming his creation on this day. For two reasons. Jesus is fine here. But they don't consider either of those two reasons. To do so would cause them to reconsider their own rules and their pre-established conclusions. They don't want to do that. So they keep questioning Having doubted the character of this alleged lawbreaker now, now they kind of doubt the miracle. So they call his parents. Is this really your son? And was he really born blind? Come on. So they answer. They affirm part of the story, as you read there. But as to how it happened, we're not going to go there. Talk to him. He's old enough. They're afraid. They're afraid of the dominant religious culture in which they live and the threats from it. Afraid of being excommunicated. They're going to be cut out of everything and everyone that they hold near and dear. Their culture will cut them off if they open the door and consider this real Jesus. And so they don't. They step back and say, talk to him. We don't want any part of this. We'll stay where we are, thank you. So they turn back to him. In verses 24 to 34, the interrogation is alternatingly a bit humorous and then plain bitter. 
Verse 24, the Pharisees put the man under oath now. Give glory to God. It doesn't mean praise the Lord. It means, essentially, put your hand on the Bible and swear. But notice, they feed him what he is to swear to. Put your hand on the Bible and swear that you are in agreement with us that this man is a sinner. And for all his credit, this this man does not fully understand things yet. He doesn't actually know who Jesus is exactly yet, but he smells a rat. He knows this is no unbiased interrogation anymore, if it ever was unbiased. So he begins to call them on that. I don't know about your presuppositions. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, like you're saying. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. That's all I know. That's what I'm going to swear to. And and you keep badgering me and us for all the details. We've already told you. Then tongue firmly planted in cheek. Do you want to be one of his disciples too? Which as expected infuriates them. And they curse him and declare their allegiance to Moses. They pull out their trump card. We're with Moses, the law. You and those who follow this Jesus. We don't know anything about him. We don't know where he's from not realizing, as we have, as we've been reading through John, that Moses and the books of Moses testify all over the place to Jesus. Moses is the one who spoke of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. Moses is the one who wrote about Jacob receiving the promises poured out the people of God. Jesus. Moses is the one who set up the tabernacle amidst the people. Who's tabernacled among us? Jesus. It's all over the place in Moses. They don't see that. We do, having read along. We follow Moses, they say. Moses follows God, this Jesus we don't know about. They're not questioning his hometown. When they talk about his origin, they're talking about the origin of his religious authority. He sure ain't of the line of Moses and God, they say. To which this courageous man sarcastically replies, verse 30, My, oh my, this is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. You're the religious leaders, and you don't know where this guy comes from. He's done a remarkable miracle such that has never been seen anywhere. A man born blind, healed. Certainly God wouldn't verify that. God wouldn't grant his blessing to that if this man was a sinner, would he? No. God listens to righteous people and you have no idea where this man comes from. That's amazing, dripping with sarcasm. A blind man can see this. They don't want to hear that. So they cast him out of the synagogue and into the arms of Jesus. Pretty fair trade. This man does not know what Jesus looks like. Jesus has to find him. Jesus pursues him and says, Do you believe in the man who's called the Son of Man? Who is he so that I can believe? The man wants to believe. The man's eager. Jesus then introduces himself. It's me. The man falls down and worships. Closes with Christ in joy, in total submission, in belief, and in trust. And in the same breath, Jesus closes the door on the Pharisees who continue to reject, casting them out of the light back into the synagogue. Chapter 9. There's a lot there. I'm going to focus our attention on two main points this morning. Pull two main points out here. One, the first one is more theological, about who God is, who Jesus is, what, what they're doing here. Kind of a theological point. And the second point, which I think is where more of the weight in the chapter actually comes down, if you judge by space, the second point is about our response to that. And together, those two things make for this common theme here. John's always talking about this, and here it is again this morning. 
Humble yourself before Jesus. Humble yourself before Jesus if you want to see and enjoy the glory of God. Humble yourself before Jesus if you want to see and enjoy the glory of God. We work towards that through these two points. The first point is drawn primarily from the words of Jesus in the beginning and in the end of the chapter. So I'm going to be working here first. Here's the first main point. God acts to display his glory in Jesus. God acts to display his glory in Jesus. In sovereign, omnipotent, authoritative power, God acts. He does things. He does all kinds of things for all sorts of reasons. But there is one reason in particular that stands kind of behind everything. One great, overarching, supreme reason that God acts. He acts to display His glory. And He does that now in Christ. Let's look at that in this text. Verse 3. Jesus, whose sin caused this blindness? Answer, nobody's. God did it. There is clear divine purpose here. If you're reading the English Standard Version, it says that the works of God might be displayed. Or if you have the NAS or the NIV, it's so that the works might be displayed. So that or that same thing, it's pointing us towards intention, purpose. If I say, I went to the store so that I could buy milk, I'm not talking about an, an accidental occasion to pick up some milk. It's intentional. It was in my power to either go or not go to the store. I decided I need milk. I want to buy some milk. So I went to the store so that I could buy the milk. It's intention. It's deliberate there. God deliberately, intentionally made this man blind for a reason. To display his works. Let's think about that for a second. What does it mean to display God's works? To display... Not to hide, but to bring out, to display God's works is to show something that God does, obviously. Which is also to show something of Him, of His nature, of His being. For instance, God says, watch me cover the land of Egypt in plagues and in affliction. Why? So that Egypt and all the nations and my people can learn something about me. I am a righteous God, not to be messed with, powerful beyond belief. Watch this and learn about me as I pour out my axe here in public. Or God says, watch me as I part the Red Sea. And he means watch and learn something about me, my might, my deliverance. I bring my people through and I shut the doors on their enemies. You watch him act, you learn about him. So to display the works of God is to display God. His nature, his being, in all of its splendor and majesty. So to display the works of God is to display God as glorious. To display the glory of God. And this man was created blind so as to provide an opportunity to display God's glory. So what does Jesus do to display God's glory? 
Jesus displays God's glory by showing, in this man, God to be a promise keeper. God to be someone who keeps his long-standing promises to bring an end to blindness, to bring in the day of the end of blindness, to bring in the day of the Messiah. God had long promised that he would bring an age of glorious light to open the eyes of the blind. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, in that day, the great day of Messiah, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. 29 verse 18, or 35 5. The eyes of the blind shall be opened in the future, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute sing for joy, for water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Think of all the connections from that verse alone. Streams of water, John 7, John 4. The lame leaping for joy, John 5. The blind seeing, here John 9. A lot of connections there. Or about Isaiah 42, 7. The Lord speaking to one called his chosen servant. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners. That's God's promise. 600 years ago, for 600 years, that promise had been kind of hanging there. The scriptures look forward to that day when the lame would walk, the blind would see, the day of the new covenant. God's Messiah come to deliver vastly as people. And what Jesus says on this day is, watch God keep his promises. He sent me to do it. He sent me to execute what he long promised. It's here. The day promised has dawned. Watch this. And he makes the man to see. It's dawn. It's not here in fullness. It's not here completely, but the sun is rising. The day has dawned. That much is clear. But there's more here than that. It's kind of like right here on the physical level. And John and Jesus are repeatedly working on the physical so as to work on the spiritual. He is displaying the glory of God here on the physical. Who has power over the blind? The man born blind. You can look at this and you can cognitively put this together. Promise made. I'm watching. I see the promise fulfilled. God is a promise keeper. This one must be in cahoots with him in some way or another. I don't understand it all. You can see that on the cognitive, physical level. But there's a lot more. The fullest display of the glory of God is not just here on this cognitive. A leads to B leads to C. I can see that with my physical eyes. The fullest display of the glory of God is a display that leads to enjoying it in here. And the enemy that Jesus has to overcome for that to happen is spiritual blindness, not physical blindness. Jesus ultimately wants to display the glory of God in a way that we see it in here, not just here, but see it in here and delight in it and come to it and cling to it and this God. That's what he really wants to get after. To help, uh, let me explain the difference by this analogy. Do you remember back during the Cold War 
when we would uh, occasionally on the news you'd see one of these massive military parades that the Soviet Union held. Everybody knew the Soviet Union had a huge military. But sometimes, every May, for instance, you'd see this massive parade in Red Square. There'd be thousands of soldiers and tanks and missiles and aircraft flying over the head, overhead. There it was, right in front of our eyes, displayed there for us, all of the military might, but we didn't love it. We feared it, if you were an American. We feared it. We worked against it. We sought to undermine it. It was displayed. We saw it, but we didn't love it. Jesus displays the glory of God by physically healing this man, but what he's really after is displaying the glory of God in here so that I see it in here and so that I love it and so that you love it and enjoy it and are stirred by it inside. And for that to happen, he has to overcome far more than physical blindness. He has to overcome spiritual blindness. That's what he does in verses 35 to 41. He finds the man, asks him if he believes. The man says he doesn't know, explains who he is. The man falls down and worships, trusts him. His eyes are opened, and he sees this guy. Picture how this conversation is going. He's talking to the same man. And then he sees him differently. Something happens there. And the Pharisees standing right next to him who overhear the conversation, it doesn't happen in them. They're still resistant. Surely you're not talking about us. We're not blind, are we? Well, I guess you are. There's something that happens in there that's not just cognitive, it's inside, supernatural, it's spiritual overcoming of blindness. The details are not here. Doesn't say how it happens. Doesn't trace it out. You can look at chapter 6 and find some of those details, but it's not here. The point is, Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus is the light that shines, that overcomes spiritual blindness, and because he doesn't go into all the details about how that happens, it serves to highlight the most important thing in this chapter, I think, your response to it. Say it's the most important if you just look at the number of verses, Jesus is here and Jesus is here, and in the middle, there's a huge treatment of different people's responses. Back and forth and up and down. God is acting to display his glory in Jesus. To display it for our physical eyes to see, but much more importantly, to display it for our spiritual eyes to see. He is acting to do a work in us. God's doing that. God is active. How do you respond? That's the second point. Move to that now. This comes around now to us. We look at the text. Jesus is who Jesus is. Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing. We can't change any of that. The point in it to you is how do you respond to it? The appropriate response is this, second point. Embrace your personal blindness if you want to see. might sound a little counterintuitive, but embrace your personal blindness if you want to see. He's working to display something. Do you want to see that? Embrace your blindness. We're going to work towards that by looking at three types of people in this text. 
There are three types of people who bump into the light in some way or another. How do they respond? They all respond differently. So here's the task for you. Figure out which one of these people you are. Maybe all the time, or maybe from time to time you hop back and forth between them. Which one are you right now? Which one are you most consistently? Which one do you struggle with? So the light is going on here, flick. The light goes on, and we're standing there. Which one of these people are you? The first one's the Pharisees. What is their mental stance towards Jesus in this story? What's their mental stance? We are right. We know. Several points in the passage. We know. We know this. We know that. We know he breaks the law. He's a lawbreaker. And we know what the law is. And we know that he's only a man, and so he's not allowed to do these things. He's a sinner. We know he's disobedient to Moses. And we have no need to be taught by him, and certainly not by you. No need to be taught. We're simply looking here again and again and again for information that will support our prior conclusions. This Jesus that's shining, actually, this glory of God he's intending to display and that you're telling me about, we have no interest in that. That does not fit. Therefore, it's not right. We know. If you disagree with us, you're going to suffer the consequences. Is that you? And I know you're not a Jewish religious leader. But is there approach? Is there manner with Jesus? You, or you sometimes. You from time to time. You can be a Christian and still be in this place at times. Do you find yourself coming to Jesus, thinking yourself already fully informed? Already pretty well informed? Already having some conclusions about how your life should go, about how you should be living, about what you should value? Maybe that's illumination that you've gathered from other sources, media, neighbors, work world, facts, ideas, and illumination that you've gathered that's built you up and then you come to Jesus looking for what fits with that. Not prepared to submit. Not coming looking for light, coming with light. Is that you? That's pride. That's you sitting in the seat of judgment standing over God Almighty and telling Him what you will and will not accept, what you will and will not look at. This keeps many people away from Christ. It keeps many Christians trapped in cycles of sin. I'm not primarily talking about those of us who, who sin and realize it and repent and we're struggling with that. There are some of us here this morning who are long gone down this road. What are you talking about? I don't sit as God over God. I don't set myself up on the seat of judgment. Really? Never? What is sin? What is sin? It happens in an instant sometimes, but sin is, Jesus says, I should go this way. Mm, no thanks, I'm going to go this way. That's me sitting in the seat of judgment, deciding which one I will embrace. And we do that, and we turn back. But some of us are long gone down this road. Long, long ago, gave ourselves to illumination from other places. And we look at Jesus, and we pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like, 
that don't necessarily confront us, that don't get too uncomfortable with how we conduct our, our sexual lives, what we do with our money, how much we work, how we treat other people? Do you find yourselves, yourself, hiding things, not being completely honest, resisting? You struggle with something again and again and again and again and again. It's not broken off. It's not cut. There's no way that I can be exhausted here. There's no way I can be exhausted. Examine yourself. The fundamental description of this, of this attitude of the Pharisees is we bring the truth to the table. We see. And then we're going to fit in whatever you say that already matches our prior conclusions. We see. Is that you? Second type of person in this passage. The parents of the man. Now they're similar in that they don't close with Jesus, but they're a little different in that what their primary motivation is is, is not an arrogant pride. It's a fearful pride. They're afraid. They're afraid. They look at this situation. Something remarkable has happened. It's their son, for crying out loud. They've lived with him for their whole lives, blind, and now he sees, just like everybody else. Something astounding has happened. It's right there, but there's also something very big and very real right there. Namely, the opinion of all the people around them. And they're afraid. If we open this door and move towards this and actually give this a fair shake, we're going to be cut off by all the things and all the people that we've held dear. And that is too high of a price to pay. So no. Not no, because... We looked into it hopefully and found sadly that he's not the one. But no, because the price to pay is too high, so we're not going to look. Is that you? Self-preservation ruling you. This is common the world over. Dominant religious systems the world over scare people away from seeking the true Jesus. Dominant non-Christian religions everywhere threaten people to cut them off from family, from relationships, from culture, to cut them off if they open the door and start walking towards the Jesus of the Bible. I hope that's not you because it's keeping you away from the Jesus of the Bible who wants to shine into your heart a glorious God who will give you life. To see the glory of God here with spiritual eyes. To see it is to live. To realize how magnificent He is. And to know that His magnificence is bent for you in grace. You could have that and they're scaring you away from it. Come. Come. There could be Christians here too that are in this category. You're afraid... If I make a tenth of the money that I made last year, what's life going to be like? Better not do that. If I actually open up and become vulnerable to him, then he'll have some ammunition against me to hurt my feelings. Better not do that. Etc. It's holding you away from embracing Jesus and what he has for you is fear. Don't shrink back. Instead, become the third person. 
Third person, obviously, is the man. The man himself. What is his mental stance towards Jesus? His posture? It's a beautiful one. It's clearly submissive, desiring to be obedient from start to finish. He doesn't know everything, but he embraces what he knows and keeps coming back, show me more, teach me more. He lets Jesus, total stranger, wipe mud on his eyes. And then he obeys him when he says, go to this pool some distance away and wash. He doesn't even know what he's talking about, but he, he does it. And he still doesn't know who he is. He's still in the dark, he just knows his name. He, he surmises maybe he's a prophet when he's, when he's questioned. Then when he defends Jesus, it's only a partially informed defense. He doesn't know everything. His defense gets him cast out of the synagogue and he meets up again with Jesus. Is he angry? Is he mad at what he's lost? No. On the contrary, he's eager to learn more. He's ready to believe. He's looking for information. Jesus, tell me who this Son of Man is so that I can believe in Him, so that I can embrace Him. Teach me. I'm blind here. I'm in the dark. I don't know. Show me. And Jesus shines on him. Shines on him in a way that somehow changes him on the inside. The details aren't there. Changes him on the inside so that he says, I want that. And he trusts it. Not falsely, not externally, genuinely trusts it. And falls down and worships this Jesus. He sees him as more than just a human being. He sees him somehow. Man and God joined together. That's his response. His mental stance, teach me. Is that you? Three types of people, but there are really only two basic stances. First one is Jesus second. Me first. Jesus how he fits me. And the second one is the opposite of that. The second one is Jesus first, me second. I come humble and submitted to him. Teach, shine, open my eyes, change me. How all that happens, details are not there. But what is clear is that only those who acknowledge their need end up seeing. And those who claim they see end up missing the whole thing. Jesus comes to do that very thing in verse 39. He's light that comes to shine for the purpose of opening the eyes of those who say help and shutting the eyes of those who say, I don't need any help. This is the bottom line, the whole thrust of this point. Where are we supposed to be? Embrace your personal blindness if you want to see. Have the attitude towards him day in and day out. Show me so that I can believe. If you're not a Christian, show me so that I can believe in whoever the Son of Man is. I want to be saved. Show me. If you are a Christian, which most of us here are this morning, show me today and tomorrow and the next day. Show me. Show me God in a way that captures me. I want to be submitted I'm going to engage myself with you, God. I want you. I know where you're found. I want to go looking for you there, but would you show up? Would you illumine my eyes? 
Help me to trust, to believe, to see with the eyes of my heart. That your attitude, and I mean your real attitude, and it's what you say. I don't think any of the Christians here are going to say, no, that's not, and I don't want it to be. Your real attitude. Does it ache inside of you if you don't have that? You can check your attitude by looking at two things. Am I using the means? Because Jesus reveals himself in the means. Scripture and prayer. Fellowship with other people. And you can check yourself by asking, am I obedient? Because I can't say I'm submissive and humble and coming and looking to him for light and I'm walking my own path. Yes, we all sin, but I mean walking my own path. That is not submitted. If that's you, if you're way down this path, come back. Submit to him. Ask him, illumine my heart, please. Repent and turn. Humble yourself before Jesus if you want to see and enjoy the glory of God. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.